So it's football season, as you're well aware. Uh, we're about halfway through uh, college, professional, high school football season. This is a big cultural thing in Texas, I know. We all have the teams that we root for. And yesterday was one of those days. Yesterday was the day of college football. And I'm told that there were a number of really exciting games that happened yesterday, including my Oklahoma State Cowboys beating Texas. Um, I got a few cheers, a few boos. Come on. You can't boo the preacher. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm told it was a great game, but I couldn't watch it. I'm unfortunately not yet at the point in my spiritual life when I can handle in my sanctification watching Oklahoma State play. I've learned a lesson over the years, and I break it from time to time. I broke it last week when Oklahoma State lost to TCU. Uh, but so yesterday, when, when Oklahoma State played Texas, I didn't watch it. I just couldn't watch it. For the sanctification to continue in my life, I just I, I, I could not tune in to watch the game. It was too much. It stirs up in me things that I don't like to see. Until... I got the notification on my phone that there was about three minutes left in the game, and then I turned it on. When the Cowboys went up a touchdown and there were three minutes left in the game, I had reasonable enough confidence to trust that they'd be uh, able to close out the game, and that's when I tuned in and watched the end. But I do love football. Sometimes I love football a little bit too much. And over the years, I've learned, as I'm sure you have as well, that when it comes to sports like football, sometimes the difference between winning and losing really does come down to who is the better team, which team has more talent. Sometimes the difference between winning and losing comes down to who makes the worst mistake at the absolute wrong time. And sometimes the difference between winning and losing, especially at an elite level, at the NFL level, the difference between winning and losing is about which team has the better game plan and executed that game plan. At the highest of levels, when both teams are quite evenly matched, sometimes it really does come down to which coach had the better game plan and which team executed that game plan better. And this is true not only for football, but also for life. It's true for the Christian life. And you and I, as we navigate through this battle in a fallen world, thankfully, Jesus gave us a tremendous game plan. The question is, can you and I execute that game plan? Today we begin a new series, really a three-part series that's going to take us all the way through 2023. It's a three-part series entitled Following Jesus in a Fallen World. And part one, which we're going to begin today, we're going to go through John chapters 13 through 17 over the course of the next several weeks. This section of the Gospel of John, often called the Upper Room Discourse, and this is where Jesus lays out his game plan for his disciples. Jesus knows that he's about to return to the Father. He knows that he's about to go into heaven. He knows that this is going to happen by means of his death and resurrection, and knowing that he's not going to leave his disciples without a plan, 
Here in John 13 through 17, he gives his game plan for his disciples once he departs. This is going to take us several weeks to go through. Then we're going to look at the book of Lamentations and talking about following Jesus in a fallen world and how we need to be a people of confession and repentance. And then in 2023 and through 2023, we're going to look at part three of following Jesus in a fallen world where we're going to go through the gospel of Mark and follow Jesus along the way, which is a phrase that Mark loves to use. Uh, But today begins, again, this series through the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 through 17, where we're looking at the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a fallen world? And we're gonna look at Jesus's game plan for you and for me, for his disciples of all time. So back to my football analogy. In a football game, you often have cheerleaders who maybe lead the crowd in different chants, right? And so here is my attempt at being, my audition for being a cheerleader um, this morning. I want you to to just answer me out loud as passionately as you can in this little chant and this little cheer. Ready? Do you want to follow Jesus? A little louder. That's, That's not good enough. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do we live in a fallen world? then how are we going to do that? Silence. (laughs) It's going to be my attempt as we walk through John 13 through 17 to answer that question. How are we going to do it? You're here this morning, I'm guessing, because you want to follow Jesus. You open the newspaper and it's easy to take note of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And I think it's gonna become more and more difficult for us, for followers of Jesus, to live out our faith in a fallen world. But thankfully, Jesus has given us a game plan. I want you to open your Bible to John chapter 13. We're gonna take a look at verses one through 30 together this morning, jumping into this series. And you can see there in your bulletin, on your outline, three things we're gonna look at. Number one, we're gonna look at Jesus's action of washing the feet of his disciples and Simon Peter's response to what Jesus does. Then number two on your outline, we're gonna look at Jesus' explanation of why he washed the disciples' feet. And then we're gonna see Judas, son of Simon Iscariot's response. And then number three, we'll talk about how to apply this passage in our life today. So grab your Bibles, uh, open up to John chapter 13. Let's begin, I wanna read for you John chapter 13, verses one through three, which is gonna establish the context for us this morning. John chapter 13, verses one through three, the gospel writer John says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart Out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Let's pause right here. 
John here in these first three opening verses establishes the context. He's reminding us that it's now Jesus' time. His hour has come. The time of his departure is now imminent. He's about to return, as John says here, to the Father. The glorious position of authority that Jesus had before the incarnation. Jesus is about to return to heaven to be with God the Father in heaven. But it's now that time. And knowing, Jesus knowing this exalted position to which he's about to return. Notice what he does. Notice what he does. Something surprising, even shocking in this culture. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, verse 4, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus knowing that he was about to, by means of his death and resurrection, return to his position of pre-incarnate glory with God the Father, he shockingly girds himself in a towel, grabs a basin of water, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, because you and I are about 2,000 years and a whole lot of cultural differences removed from the first century world of the New Testament, i got to explain something significant that's taking place here. See, within the cultural world of the first century Israel, roads were dirty. And people, as they traveled around roads, especially wearing different sandals and things on their feet, their feet would inevitably get very, very dirty. And so as you entered into a home in the first century Israelite world, it was common for there, be, for there to be a basin of water with which you could use to wash your feet. And in some homes, especially more elite homes, wealthier homes, they might have a servant there to wash your feet when you came in. But, culturally speaking, it was absolutely beneath, culturally inappropriate for a Jewish man to wash someone else's feet. A wealthy person might hire a Gentile to wash his guest's feet, but you would never ask a fellow Jewish man to wash the feet of your guests. Now, by the way, it was culturally acceptable for a Jewish woman to wash the feet of her husband, but that is another sermon for another day for a much, fool, more, much more foolish preacher than me. I'm not going to tackle that one, all right? Um, but you've got to understand the context here. What Jesus does here is culturally shocking and surprising because he, the most superior person there, the one who is about to return to his pre-incarnate position of glory, the master and Lord of his disciples, is the one who grabs the water basin and stoops to perhaps the lowest level of the social rung and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. You can only imagine the shock 
that fell upon the disciples when Jesus began to do this. Jesus completely reverses the socially accepted roles and his act of humility is shocking and stunning. And that's exactly what you see in the response of Simon Peter. I want you to follow along with me as we pick back up the story here starting in verse 6. So he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter and he said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Again, you can see, because of the cultural understanding, you can see why Peter is so thrown off. Peter is simply following the typical and accepted custom, or custom and norm in this society. Peter cannot fathom that Jesus, his Lord, his master, his rabbi, would dare stoop so low to that place of humility to wash Peter's feet. But then notice the interchange that takes place in verses 7 and 8. Jesus answered and said to him, to Peter, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Notice again in this interchange between Jesus and Peter, what, Jesus, uh, what Peter is struggling with is this social norm of Jesus is taking the place of a lowly servant and Peter's wrestling with it. I think you and I would have wrestled with it too. We'd have struggled to accept this position, this gesture of humility on Jesus' part to us. But then Jesus tips his hand here and he explains to Peter, listen, I'm doing something more significant than what you realize. You'll understand it later. But even still, Peter says, never, I can't have you do this. But then notice, again, what Jesus says there in verse 8. Peter, if I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. So verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I love this, by the way. You got to love Peter. He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth and things, but um, you got to love what he says here. He basically says, all right, Lord, listen, if this is necessary... If you have to cleanse me or I have no part in you, I don't have relationship with you, then don't just wash my feet, but wash me from head to toe. Give me a full bath, right? Um, he's now accepting what Jesus is doing, this cleansing that Jesus is offering to him. And as we'll read about here in a few verses, this is a picture of Jesus' cleansing of Peter, especially in the forgiveness of sins. But before we go any for, uh, forward any further, I, I want to ask you, have you embraced the cleansing, the forgiveness, the washing of Jesus in your life? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you trusted in him for your cleansing, your redemption? Because the truth is we're all sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us are undeserving of Jesus' cleansing here. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God in Jesus offers to you redemption, cleansing, forgiveness, reconciliation, not based on anything you do, but on the sacrificial act of Jesus on the cross. And if you've never trusted in him, I'd encourage you, right where you are watching online, to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him.
Well, back to the text. Notice what Jesus says next in response to Peter. He says there in verse 10, Jesus said to him, to Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he, Jesus, knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So continuing in this little interchange between Peter and Jesus, Jesus now identifies the fact that one of his disciples will betray him. One of his disciples isn't clean. Now you and I know this person to be Judas. We'll look at him later. But first, I want to ask the question, why did Jesus perform this act of foot washing? I think we see here in the words of Jesus, part of it was to explain to his disciples their need for his cleansing. But there's another, another lesson in there as well, and we see that as we take a look at number two on your outline. Again, grab your Bible, follow along with me, number two on your outline. John chapter 13, let me read for you verses 12 through 17. So when he had finished washing their feet, he had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, and he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Excuse me. So, here in verses 12 through 17, we see that part of Jesus' purpose in washing the feet of his disciples as he is teaching them a lesson in humility. He's teaching them a lesson in humbly serving one another. A couple things I want you to see here. First of all, notice Jesus acknowledges the fact that he indeed is of a higher position than they are. He, he acknowledges the fact that he is indeed their Lord and master. He acknowledges the struggle that Peter is having here with this break in social custom. Jesus is indeed their Lord and their master. And yet he raises the question, if I, your Lord, would stoop so low as to wash your feet, then you, who are lesser than me, should also wash one another's feet. This is a lesson ultimately in humbly serving one another. And the amazing thing I want you to see there in verse 17 is the promise that Jesus gives. He tells his disciples, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you know these things, if you learn this lesson of humble service, then you're blessed, Jesus says, if you do them. But let's be honest. That's the exact opposite message of our world. Already we're here in the text seeing this tension that takes place between following Jesus and living in a fallen world because our fallen world does not say you're blessed if you serve other people. Our fallen world says you're blessed if you have a lot of people serving you. The world says you're blessed not if you serve others, but if you have others serving you. But Jesus says no, that's not the way to live. 
This is all part of Jesus' kind of upside-down way of doing things. Jesus' game plan for his disciples, as they live out their faith in a fallen world, it begins with this idea of humbly serving other people. Taking the place of a servant, humbly serving other people. Jesus here illustrates this idea we see throughout the New Testament that greatness in the kingdom does not come from your position, but from your service. But again, this is very countercultural, it's a little bit shocking. And as we keep looking into the text, we see that one of Jesus' own disciples struggles with this as well. Let's take a look at Judas, son of Simon Iscariot's response to what Jesus says here. Notice verses 18 through 20. Jesus continues to speak here and he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, of course, you and I know, again, we know the end of the story. We know how this is going to pan out. So we know that when Jesus is talking about one of his disciples betraying him, we know Jesus was talking about Judas, Right? But at this point in the story, Judas has not really been identified. Jesus just says here, he's quoting Psalm 41. Psalm 41.9, Jesus says, this is going to happen so that scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now there's another little cultural nuance that you need to understand here. Once again, in the first century world, feet were dirty. And to lift your heel against someone was an act of bringing shame upon them. So the psalmist in Psalm 41, and Jesus quoting Psalm 41 here, he's illustrating the fact that one of his own disciples, this man that he knows, is going to lift his heel against him and bring some sort of shame upon him. Some of you might remember a number of years ago when President George Bush was about to leave office, he was speaking in Baghdad and an Iraqi reporter threw his shoe, uh, both shoes actually, at the president and he said in Arabic, uh, this is in English now, he said as he threw his shoe, this is a farewell kiss from the Iraqi people, you dog. Uh, That was not a gesture of kindness, right? That was not a gesture of hospitality. And it's similar to what we see here in John chapter 13. To lift your heel against someone was an act act of public shame and humiliation. And knowing this, notice verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. But once again, you and I know that Jesus is talking about Judas. But the disciples don't yet know that it's Judas who will betray Jesus. Notice, for example, verse 22. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, verse 22 says, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss 
to know of which one he was speaking. So there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, probably John, the writer of the gospel, and Simon Peter gestured to him, to John, and said, tell us, who is it of whom he is speaking? And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, John, said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Notice the disciples have no idea that it's Judas who is soon to betray Jesus and lift his heel against Jesus. And so notice there, verse 26, Jesus answered and said, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus said, do what you do, do quickly. But notice again, verse 28, now no one, of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this, for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. And after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out immediately and it was night. Again, I want you to put yourself in the scene here. Jesus has just announced that one of his own will lift up his heel against him. One of his own will betray him. And there's this now question and answer across the room between John and Peter trying to figure out who it is. Jesus hands the morsel to Judas. Judas gets up and leaves, and yet still no one suspects it. Now, you and I naively think if we were there, we would have gotten up from from the table, we would have run across the room, we would have tackled Judas as he was trying to leave, right? Right? Um, But this just goes to show how much the disciples trusted Judas. He was entrusted with the money box. No one suspected that he was going to be the betrayer. And yet here Judas commits an act of treachery that's beyond comprehension. And there's a lesson in the life of Judas for you and for me. J. Carl Laney says, I believe there's a significant lesson for Christians in the life of Judas. Judas had set his affections and attentions on material matters, laying up his treasure on earth rather than in heaven. His priorities were all mixed up. He says, sometimes, like Judas, believers can allow their priorities to become confused and devote excessive amounts of energy to the pursuit of the dollar and passing pleasures rather than concentrating our attentions on Christ. And so the lesson is to guard against majoring on the relatively insignificant things of life and leaving Christ out of the picture. Instead, we should focus on what will count for eternity. So let's look at number three now on your outline. We've looked at this passage, kind of part one in Jesus' game plan for us, our marching orders. If we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we see this lesson on humility and humbly serving other people. But how do we apply it? I've got to tell you, I struggled all week long uh, with the idea in the back of my mind, I thought, man, I've I've got a grasp on this passage, but I feel like there's something in there that I'm not seeing. There's something in there that that I'm not quite getting, and I struggled with it all week long. 
And by the way, um, this isn't the first time I've studied this passage. I took a class at DTS with Dr. Pentecost on John chapters 13 through 17, right? And yet still, I was struggling all week long. Like, I feel like there's just a nugget in here that I'm not getting. And every week, you know, I take my job very seriously. I hope you know that. I, I, I try to say things here from the pul- pulpit that I think uh, the, the intention of the author has in mind for us. And yet all week long, I felt like there's something in here I'm not getting. There's something in here I'm not seeing. And thankfully, on Wednesday night, as the deadline for submitting my outline was being the next morning, we have Olivia who every week formats the outline, Taskell who stuffs all the bulletins. I had this pressure of thinking, I've got to come up with something so that these ladies have something to give to you, Right? And yet, all week long, I struggled with what in the world is John doing in this passage? What's the point of it for you and for me today? What is the application? Uh, When thankfully, God brought something to my mind and I saw something here in the passage that I'd never seen before. And actually, Wednesday night, I went to my wife and uh, I asked her, I said, hey, will you wash my feet? Not really, I didn't say that. I said, "Um, will you... (laughs) I said, hey, am I crazy? I'm seeing something here in this passage. What do you think? And what I want to do is I want to read a few of these verses again to you, and I want you to see what I failed to see. And if you see it, don't say anything because I want to give your time for your neighbor to see it as well. I want you to look, something John does throughout his gospel. John loves word plays. He loves word repetitions. And in those word repetitions and word plays, he's conveying a message to his audience. And so let me read a couple verses for you again and take note of a couple repeated words and themes here in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. Just a few verses I'm going to read again. Verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Verse 6. So he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Verse 24, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who is it of whom he is speaking? And verse 26, Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Two big word plays and repetitions going on here in John chapter 13 that for a long time I didn't see until Wednesday night. Over and over again, John, the gospel writer, describes Peter as Simon Peter, and he describes Judas as Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. John is the only gospel writer, by the way, who describes Judas as Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, and it's concentrated here in the 13th chapter. On top of that, you have a repetition of this idea, the concept of the foot. Jesus comes to Peter, Simon Peter, to wash his feet. And then you have 
Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who's about to lift his heel up against Jesus. You could say that John chapter 13 is the tale of two Peters, two Simons, excuse me. John chapter 13 is the tale of two Simons, tying them together, Peter and Judas, with this common name. But these are two very different Simons. And both Simons have this interaction with Jesus around their feet. Simon Peter who usually puts his foot in his mouth, by the way, has this amazing interaction with Jesus over Jesus washing his feet. Peter recognizes that he's unworthy of Jesus to wash his dirty feet. He recognizes Jesus' superior position to him, and he can't fathom in his mind the thought of Jesus humiliating himself to the place of a servant to wash his feet until Jesus says, Peter, this is necessary, and then Peter says, then give me a full bath. Peter has the humility to accept the cleansing that Jesus is offering. And if you know Peter's life, you know that he also has the humility to use his life in service to Jesus as he serves humbly other people. But also here in John chapter 13, you have a very different tale of a very different Simon. Judas, son of Simon Iscariot who Jesus says here is going to lift his foot, lift his heel against Jesus, bringing upon him an act of humiliation and shame. Judas, who is not clean, and who will ultimately lead to this treacherous act of betrayal. And in the middle of it all, you have Jesus. And you have the lesson that Jesus has for his disciples and for you and I, where Jesus says again there in John chapter 12 through, or chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, he says in verse 15, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. John, in his brilliant writing style, using word plays and repetitions, I believe what he's doing is he's asking you, he's asking me, he's asking the readers of the gospel, which Simon will you be? Which Simon will you be? Am I like Simon Peter, who acknowledges my need of Jesus' cleansing, who will ultimately follow Jesus' example of humbly serving other people? Or, on the other hand, am I like Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who will lift my heel against my Savior, even to the point of betraying him? And please don't think for a second that you're incapable of being like Judas, because we are. It's so easy for us, for you, for me, for all of us, to think that Jesus is nothing more than our ticket to heaven, but then I can go on living my life as I want to live. There's no way to live. The example Jesus gives for his disciples here is that he's calling them to something much more than that. To follow him by humbly serving other people. I love what Warren Wearsby says. The world asks, how many people work for you? But Jesus asks, 
For how many people do you work? I think that's the point of the passage. There on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. And your one thing for this week is this. If you have time for only one application, this is what I'd ask you to do. Is simply ask this question. If you want to follow Jesus in a fallen world, and earlier you said you did, then we need to obey Jesus' marching order for us by humbly serving other people. So whom are you serving? Whom can you serve? Again, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's about to return to his position of pre-incarnate glory, glory with God the Father in heaven. He's built this ministry. He's now handing it over to his disciples who are carry, carry it forward for 2,000 and counting years. Here in John chapter 13, Jesus begins to lay out his game plan for them, for you, for me, for us. The question is, how well are we going to execute his game plan? If we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, the first part of our game plan is to humbly serve other people, bowing as low as we can go, to serve people in the name of and in the love of Jesus our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for your word, first of all. Thank you that um, we're constantly learning more and more from your word. We're constantly uh, being called to live in greater and greater uh, conformity to the image of Jesus. Father, help us by your grace, by your mercy, by the power of your spirit, uh, truly to live our life for him. Father, I know that we're all struggling with what it really means, what it looks like to follow Jesus in a fallen world. It can so easily discourage us as we read the headlines, as we see the conflict. And so help us, Father, to faithfully obey Jesus's game plan for all his disciples to follow him until he returns. Father, help us as we see here in this passage to humbly serve other people, to put other people ahead of ourselves, to love them with the love of Jesus, to serve them with the hands and feet of Jesus, truly to be the people you have called us to be, to be the disciples you have called us to be. Help us, Father, help me, help all of us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.